Now on IT Radio 1, it's time for the History Show. This episode looks at a dark and controversial chapter in Welsh history. In the 1960s, Capel Kellen, a small village in the Trewerin Valley in Wales, was submerged in water to create a reservoir to supply the city of Liverpool. Now we join Miles Duncan, who's been investigating the life and afterlife of the drowned village. Good evening and welcome to a programme on the politics of water. The tiny village of Capel Kellen in North Wales nears the end of its centuries of history, for in a few months' time the waters will be rising above its rooftop. Parliament has approved a plan by Liverpool Corporation to dam the Trewerin Valley and create a new city reservoir. The 70 inhabitants of the valley, supported by Welsh opinion generally, have been fighting the plan. They want to stay on the land where their ancestors have lived, worked and worshipped for generations. I saw their faces, their little children in the classroom, I can remember it now. And there was one child there called Trewerin. And I said to myself, what is his name going to mean for future generations? Does it mean betrayal? Cowardice? Or does it mean we made a stand about Trewerin? And that's the moment I decided I was going to act. If the drowning happened today, we would have had counselling for trauma and a lot of the older people in the village died relatively young because of all the stress. Imao Heed, or We're Still Here, is a 40-something Welsh ballad written and sung by David Ewan, which got a new lease of life in 2022 at the World Cup. Not unlike our own experience in 1990, the first excursion since 1958 by the Welsh side in the finals of the competition was a source of huge national pride. What was somewhat less expected was the choice of a song in the Welsh language as a spine-tingling anthem for Garrett Bale's side. Wales had come a long way since devolution in 1997 and an even greater distance since a humiliating controversy in the early 1960s when it became apparent that the country's public representatives had very little say in decisions that were being made in England about one of their most precious natural resources, water. But the drowning of the village of Capel Kellen, a story with some odd Irish connections, still resonates today in a far more assertive Wales. This is the great frustration, I think, still in Wales, why Trewerin Capel Kellen still ignites such anger. It was because there was huge protest at every level of Welsh life, all of which were pretty much ignored and swept aside. 
Betsan Powis is a BBC journalist, a former reporter on Panorama and the current presenter of the Welsh-language equivalent of Question Time, Paub Ivarn. She is also the producer and presenter of a recent BBC podcast, Drowned, on the flooding in 1965 of the Trwyrdan Valley and the small Welsh-speaking community of Capelkellyn in North Wales. As well as interviewing dozens of the protagonists, Betsan has also done a thorough archive research to gather material for her series. So why did Liverpool decide in the 1950s that it needed to drown a Welsh valley to secure an increased supply of water? Liverpool's population had been growing and it had been growing fast and that put pressure on the water supply in the city And there were people who were sharing outside toilets. There was a thought that not just the people of Liverpool, but the growing industry on Merseyside would need more water. In the event, the population actually started to fall even before the Valley of Truerin was drowned. And it became less clear as time went by whether the city that had needed so much water, a community was drowned, had indeed needed that water for its own use. I think there was a thought that, okay, we might be over-ordering here, but then selling water on uh, is a profitable business. And there's a suggestion, certainly in the documentation, that's been looked into quite carefully now, that they might have had that in mind. Salutation is the place to be many historians who are also recording artists. Dr. Wynne Thomas is an exception. However, as well as recording his own self-penned material, he's also produced a number of works on recent Welsh history and politics, including Truerin and New Dawn, a book based on 20 years of research of the documents around the drowning of Capel Kellen and dozens of interviews with the surviving protagonists. Here, he conveys the shock experienced by the inhabitants of the village in 1955, when they realised what was about to happen to their valley. It seems that there was a secret survey undertaken in March of 1955, where four surveyors employed by Liverpool Corporation go there to the Tyrrhenian Valley and basically undertake some sort of investigatory exploration to see how likely, how feasible this area is for flooding. They soon discover what they want is there, really. The clay is there. A gravel pit is there. Most importantly of all, there's an abundance of rainfall. So they're basically looking at this and thinking, well, we can do this as cheaply as possible. So I think these secret surveys, as they became known, gave some indication that something was afoot. Just before Christmas, so only two or three days before Christmas, the, the locals are reading in their local edition of the Liverpool Daily Post, big new dam near Bala planned for Liverpool. Now this comes as a complete shock. These surveys happen in March. Christmas is just around the corner, reading this banner headline, which gives obviously as much indication they need that their homes will soon be flooded. It was a small community. It was a community that led a very tough life. They worked together often because that was the way to survive. That was the way to make their lives and their farms 
flourish in quite a tough part of the world, really. It's surrounded by mountains. It's down in the in the valley. The town of Bala is a little way away. Their lives would have been contained in their own community, as opposed to regular visits anywhere else. The school was there, a very small school. Every child born in the village went to that school. Martha Roberts ran the place with great passion and determination that her children, even though they were in this small community, were going to be taught and taught well. They played outside. Sometimes they weren't in school because they had to help on the farm. That's how things were. And there's an admission from those who were brought up there that, yeah, it was a pretty tough life. From some, you hear maybe a little more of an admission than others that, well, you know, the new house just above the waterline was probably a bit warmer and a bit better than the house that he had been brought up with. But the point about this community is that it was a rare community and that it was entirely, utterly Welsh-speaking. And, you know, even by the late 50s and the 1960s, the Welsh language was already under pressure. And so that was the fear here, that not only were you taking these people's homes and livelihoods from them and giving them a bit of compensation, you were actually wrecking and destroying a Welsh-speaking community simply because it had been spotted in the contours of a map and suited a water engineer's needs. Liverpool City Council at this time is summed up by the attitude of, of the Braddocks. John and Bessie Braddock, married couple, childless couple. One of the lovely things that came through in the research was that Jack Braddock had asked Bessie a number of times to marry him and she said, I will marry you, Jack, on the condition we don't have children. Our family will be the Labour Party. And I thought, well, what a wonderful quote. And they they basically give their, their lives in every sense, really, to improve in the conditions of the downtrodden and the impoverished of, of Liverpool. I think you'd have to have a heart of stone, basically, to read accounts in the Braddock's biography of what life was like in the Liverpool slums. So Liverpool City Council, post-war period, need to remove the, the slab housing that's particularly around the River Mersey, so with former docks and warehouses and whatever, and big houses which the middle class had once occupied but had now moved out to the suburbs. 20 to room, 15 to room, 10 to room, whatever it is. So two, three, four families. And the conditions are horrific. They're desperate in the extreme, really. So you can see that there's a policy. We need to remove the slum housing. How are we going to finance this programme? Part of the the, the Trewedin story, I think, is the money that comes from flooding this valley. They want 65 million gallons a day, so they claim. The question mark is, for what? The accusation being that this water is basically then sold for industry. But as much as anything, they need the money in order to finance this housing regeneration programme. Now, that money is coming from the water, as provided by Llynkelyn and the flooding of the Tyrwedyn Valley. Mae'r blodau yn yr ardd yn As Wales gradually became more aware of the plans to drown the Trwyllyn Valley, resentment grew at the heavy-handed approach of Liverpool Council and the apparent ability of an English city to extract resources from Wales with impunity. National leadership in opposition to the plans to drown the valley was offered by Gwynvor Evans, who would later become the first Welsh nationalist, Plaid Cymru, a member of Parliament, 
but the people of the Trueron Valley were also organising themselves. The villagers themselves didn't simply say, oh, throw up our hands, somebody else you know, needs to help us. They got organised. By the time they'd realised that they were in trouble, it was already pretty you know, far down the line. Decisions were already being made about their valley, but they got together. They hired buses. Some had never been on this sort of coach before. Some had never been to England before. In fact, many had never been to England before. And whole families got on these two buses, school children uh, who decided that they wanted to go from local schools. They'd understood what was happening from their parents. They walked, instead of walking to school, walked to the coach and caught the bus to Liverpool. And they arrive in Dale Street in the centre of Liverpool, you know, surrounded by these very grand buildings, a very different place to anywhere they had seen before. And I think some probably were intimidated. Others were just utterly determined that as long as they shared their story, surely something would happen because this was so clearly wrong. And so they were in their Sunday best and they gathered together and they sang Land of My Father's Hinrad van Hadai. They walked to the city council. There are stories. Some came home with stories of people lining the streets and spitting on them and calling out and telling them to go home. There's a suggestion from others that people were just more bemused. They weren't sure going about their daily lives in Liverpool what to make of this band of probably very strange, old-fashioned looking people who'd arrived in their midst. But it is clear that it made no difference. Very big day for them, from what I gather. They get up, there's about probably about 30, 40 villagers and, and farmers who belong in the in the locale. And they walk with placards basically saying, please don't drown our homes. And more emotively, I think, one was, please don't drown the homes that welcomed Liverpool evacuees. And you're thinking, well, that's not really going to endear. Knowing how Liverpool suffered dreadfully in the Blitz, that's not likely to endear them to the people of Liverpool, some of whom, it is said, spat, swore, shouted. Other people I've spoken to said, well, I don't remember that. You know, what I do remember is indifference, ambivalence, really. Who are they? What do they want? Other people have said, well, actually, it may even have struck a chord with these people. That When you see a community protesting like that, marching like that, it will leave an impact. You say, well, actually, the, you know, these people will suffer one way or another, some of whom have farmed and lived in this, certainly in the area for you know, many generations. So there is an emotional attachment which comes through in the march. And even when political leaders were eventually allowed by the Braddocks because I think they decided it was probably a good idea to let them in to speak and talk to the city council, asking them, explaining to them the damage they were doing and hoping they'd been listened to. You know, Liverpool politics was a robust old business in those days and so desks were being slammed and fists were being, you know, pounded upon tables so that the call for a rethink was simply drowned out. So they were literally not listened to. And of course, we know that even though the members of Parliament for Wales then voted almost to a man against this, but of course, they were very easily outvoted. You know, 30 or so Welsh MPs were not going to get anywhere in Westminster. And so at every level, despite really impassioned letters, very well-written letters, arguing the point, not just relying upon emotion. And they're all noted at the archives in Liverpool, but they seem to have made barely a dent in the argument that Liverpool needed more water. 
it's submitted to Parliament really in December 1956. It clears its first parliamentary hurdle in January 1956 with a reading in the House of Lords, which basically acts as a first formal reading. The crucial vote comes at the second reading of the bill in early July 1957. So what happens? This is put before Parliament. Wales has 36 MPs, none of whom vote in favour of this bill. 24 vote in opposition or abstain, the rest just stay away. That opposition presumably reflects um, the opposition to the bill as held by the Welsh electorate. So this again just demonstrates, there's no Plaid Cymru MPs at this point, so these are Labour and Conservative MPs, Liberal MPs, voting in unison to demonstrate their opposition to the bill. Yet the 36 MPs count for nothing, because owing to the amount of English MPs who basically see it through. You can argue about whether there was a greater good, whether this was the right or the wrong thing to do. What you can't argue about is that when voices were raised, they simply weren't listened to at all and didn't need to be listened to because as things were then, politically and constitutionally, Wales could be outvoted, outmuscled. And that's precisely what landed. That's what people realised is that no matter what the project is, no one's going to listen to us because they don't need to. And that's surely not right. Our voices aren't being heard. And again, you can argue that Liverpool did as Liverpool found. That was the constitution at that point. It's the people of Wales who decided, hang on a moment, there's something very wrong here. And that's why you may argue that this was this turning point in Welsh history because it was a realisation way beyond Capel Kellyn, this very small community. There was a realisation in the valleys of South Wales where miners decided to do something about it and protest because this cannot possibly be right. You know, there was a realisation politically in the polit- by the political classes that here was proof positive that the UK was not made of equals and that if Wales wanted to change that, now was the time to start doing something about it. So out of this anger and frustration, you have three groups really who emerge. You have which is the Welsh Language Society, who basically recognise the part of this threat to events like Trewerin is that Welsh heartlands are being destroyed and without parliamentary protection, the political interests and the cultural interests and practices of Wales are extremely vulnerable. Also, two other groups come out called the Free Wales Army, who basically undertake what can be called a campaign of propaganda. So this is part, I think, part of the colour and the charm of, of the 1960s. And they, they has to be said, they engage the national and the international media in a very effective way, to be fair to them. But the group, I think, who comes out of it, which offered the, certainly the, the greatest threat, is a group called Midian Thiffin Cymru, which is the movement to defend Wales, or MAC, as they're more commonly known. And you have young men like Emmett Llewellyn Jones, Owain Williams, John Albert Jones, who say, where do, we, where do we go? How do we express ourselves? How do we register our opposition? What will get us noticed here? And they undertake a strike at the construction site. So by now the bill is passed, of course, 1957, July so early 1963, February, they undertake a militant protest strike at the reservoir construction site.
I can remember the people of Choharin. It was a poor sight indeed. Walking through the rain, children, adults, old people walking through the rain through Liverpool and people spitting at them and making fun of them. And it was very pathetic. But at the end of, the, of this procession of people of Trewerin was Gwynvor Evans. Emir Llewellyn Jones was a young student in the 1960s. Dismayed at the prospect of the drowning of Capel Kellen, he was determined to organise a protest campaign against the building of the reservoir. To this end, he and some friends approached the renowned Welsh poet and dramatist Saunders Lewis, co-founder of the nationalist political party that would become Plaid Cymru. We tried everything. I went actually went to see Saunders Lewis with a friend of mine when I was a student, knocked on his door. And I said, can we come in and talk to you? And he reluctantly allowed us in. And he said, what have you got to say? And I said, if we arrange a non-violent demonstration at Trewerin, will you please come and join us? And he said, uh, no, I'm too old for that. I advise you both to go back to the university and continue with your studies. The anger of Welsh nationalists seems to have been centred on this new £20 million dam at Trewerin in North Wales. Ever since Liverpool Corporation announced in 1955 that they were going to build a dam here to form a reservoir to provide water for their city, there have been letters to the papers, petitions, protests and national conferences to protest about the flooding of this part of Wales. But then in September of last year, these protests took a new turn. There had been rumours for some time of a new militant movement an organisation that might take more direct action, perhaps on the lines of the IRA in Ireland. We students of ABBA hired a car, I and a friend. The girls dropped us off near Trousfonid and we walked <laughs> to the site, both of us, in the dark of the night and we made an attack on the site itself. Unfortunately, we'd started pouring petrol over things and our night watchman disturbed us and my friend ran. He wasn't willing to give himself up and he started running and I ran with him and he was fitter than I. <laughs> he used to play football. <laughs> and we crossed over this moorland and, and I don't know how far, well, I think it was 10 miles actually. Now the night watchman had warned the police and when we crossed the moorland there was a police car, so we had to wait, <laughs> getting wet, and they eventually moved on, and we even moved on. We buried all our, all our clothes. We reached back to where we'd arranged to be picked up. They picked us up, and we went back into my flat, which I shared with this boy in Aberystwyth. That was the first time. The small coterie that comprised Mac then reset, it was decided that something altogether more dramatic was required, an act of serious sabotage involving explosives. But where to acquire the raw material and the expertise needed to use it? Emir Llewellyn looked to Ireland, where the 1950s IRA border campaign had recently ground to a halt. As a consequence, he was to encounter one of the greatest writers in the Irish language, who also happened to be a Marxist and a former member of the IRA, I remember asking Francis McCann, the famous Irish academic, and I asked him if he had a friend or if he knew of somebody who could advise us 
on how to destroy the machinery on the site. And he said, no, I don't know. The only person I know is my old friend Martin O'Kine. And he gave me his address. And I, I can remember hitchhiking all the way from Aberystwyth to Holyhead. And I went to Ireland and I knocked on Martin's door. He belonged to the older generation, the IRA. And he said, so I don't know anything about them these days. And all their arms, I think, have been dismantled or hidden or buried or whatever. There's nothing. It's not active anymore. He said, uh, well, I've got friends who might come down and advise you. Well, they did come to the house and they talked to Martin, but they said, no, that we're not involved in things like that. And um, I stayed with Martin for a whole week. He was very generous, very kind. The famous three, if you like, are Owain Williams, Emir Llewellyn, John Albert Jones, three who came together by design because they simply felt that something had to be done. They were three who decided that protest had been ignored. Letter writing hadn't worked. Speeches hadn't got anywhere. Visits to Liverpool hadn't got anywhere. Surely they felt there was a justification now for attacking the Transformer and trying to disrupt what was happening, mostly to send a message. I think even they knew that this would go ahead. But to say to England and to say to Liverpool, this isn't okay and we're not taking this lying down. And they did. They blew up the Transformer. They handled explosives. They set the explosives. They took it there in a biscuit tin not entirely confident that they would be safe, that everybody around them working that night couldn't be entirely confident that they would be safe, but determined to do something and doing their best to ensure that they only damaged the infrastructure and in that they succeeded. A date was arranged. We were committed to it. Come rain or shine, it was come rain because it was snowing heavily, but there were snow drifts on the main roads and so on. And we had a flat. There was no jack in the car. I said, oh, we'll have to call it off. And the other said, no, we're strong boys. We can lift that side of the car high enough for you. And they lifted that side and I pushed the, <laughs> either weak one, pushed the wheel back. We drove onto the site. We parked the car in a, a school yard which was about half a mile or so from the site we went over the mountain then in, in the snow which was very difficult it was it was knee high actually the last hundred yards we have to crawl i was supposed to set the detonators because i had was the only one who knew how to do it and the clock and so on and we climbed in wired it up set it all back out went back and i was climbing over one hedge I ripped my thigh here on the barbed wire and I was bleeding profusely, which was bleeding into my boots, you know, so I tied it up and my friend then drove. We went through the town. We had to go through the town anyway because the other roads were blocked off and a police car pulled out and followed us. He drove slowly and the police car pulled in. We arrived back at his flat and then we heard the news in the morning that... It had been a success. It did not, however, take the police long to identify the saboteurs. Emir was the first of the three to be arrested. 
In his court appearances, he was defended by no less a luminary than Elwyn Jones, later Baron Elwyn Jones, Labour Party Lord Chancellor from 1974 to 1979. Elwyn Jones was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And I wanted to do a, a speech from the dock, didn't I? Right, being a hero, you're going to be a hero. And he came and saw me and he said, uh, I've got a son the same age as you. How will your father and mother feel? And that struck me. And I pleaded guilty. I didn't make any oration. <laughs> Don't wrong my time at I had the impression that the, the judge was the kind of man who had admired what we did, actually. It's not wrong to say that because very lenient. You know, we were a bad example, weren't we? <laughs> My father was a young preacher and found himself one morning at a special service, a weekday service, in a chapel and realised that on the other side of the wall from that chapel was Emir Shawelin, you know, a young student whose life was about to be changed because he'd been caught after placing the explosives in Kapel Kellin. And my father looked at the congregation and he still remembers to this day this process of thought around, I have to say something. As a Christian, there's a young man next door who's done something for my nation. And whatever I feel about it, and my father is a strong pacifist and could never have agreed uh, with a method, he certainly couldn't feel that it could be ignored. That would have been the wrong thing for him to do. And so he did find the words and looked carefully at the faces in his congregation to see how they were going down, I suspect. And unbeknownst to him, there was a police officer there that day uh, who later went next door and went to see the prisoner, Emil Llewellyn, and shared with him kindly, I think, that he had been remembered by the congregation in the chapel next door. Because not all teachers and preachers and middle-class Welsh speakers were happy with what had been done, I suppose, in their name. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of very quick about turns and disassociation from these young men who had, in inverted commas, you know, gone too far. They had broken the law. And these three caused Welsh nationalists of all ilk to have a good long think about what they really felt, how strongly they felt it, and how they wanted to get to the right place. If it wasn't like this, well then how? And that again was, to my mind, a contribution to um, that moment of change in Welsh history. When I went to prison, I went on a hunger strike because I realised that act might lean, it did lean to further things which were violent. And I tried to work against that influence I was thinking about it in prison and I decided to go on a hunger strike. And I was moved from Swansea to Liverpool because people would be protesting outside at Swansea. And I was placed in this cell. The prison doctor came to us and he was brother to a well-known nationalist named Ambrose Bebb. Ambrose Bebb was one of the big names in Welsh nationalism. And he said, uh, I've got a brother, and he mentioned who he was, and he said, uh, listen, you've made your protest. We won't do force feeding, which is very dangerous. He spoke gently and kindly, and I said, OK, I'll call it off. And I did call it off after five days. And this story did spark a change in attitude. You know, Wales had been a nation of teachers and preachers who thought they knew how to protest 
had been utterly ignored on this occasion. And here were three young men who were saying, okay, we feel it's time to change the mood here. We have right on our side to protest in a different way. This is a violent political protest, but we have right on our side. And they were caught. Two of them were imprisoned. Uh, one was put on probation. And if you talk now to Emir Llewellyn, one of the three, he would tell you that pretty soon he decided in his heart that he'd never quite been comfortable with violent protest. And he is now and has since then been a strong pacifist. But his feelings about how Wales ought to be treated haven't changed one bit. I wish it got there in broad daylight to carry out a non-violent act which would become a pattern for the future. Looking back over Trewerin, I was proud of that. But there was a lot of harsh words spoken on that day. Lost a lot of friends, possibly, on that day. So you would have preferred, in retrospect, a non-violent rather than a violent protest? Yes, yes, yes. That's a, that put it in a word, yes, yes. Liverpool, they point out, already has a reservoir at Lake Burnway, not far away, and will soon have so large a surplus you'll be able to sell water to other English towns. Men like farmer R.E. Jones, who's reared 13 children in Trewerin Valley, still do not know whether their compensation will be in money or land. If we must leave the valley of our fathers, they ask, let us at least know what our future is to be. It's funny that the films seem to be in black and white and quite grey or very insipid colours at least creeping in by the end. But those who live there remember it vividly. They have lots of stories about slowly realising what was happening, founding the kids running out and finding little bits of wood to feed the school fire and the head teacher realising these little bits of wood have been laid there by engineers. What's going on here? You know, uh, why are they coming to our valley? But they have strong memories of, you know, parties and celebrations, the sadness of their parents, the anger of their parents, the disbelief of their parents, the fear about what sort of lives they would now lead, the children being aware that they were being scattered. Um, they were now not a community. They'd be sent to different schools. These were big schools for them, the fear that went with that. They remember living in cold, freezing cold caravans. It was a very, very cold winter, you know, while new homes were being built or old homes were being changed so these new families could live in them. They remember living and they remember looking down at the valley as it changed. Aaron Prasor Jones remembers seeing a photograph in the paper and from that photograph, I suspect, remembers the moment where he started to place stones that he'd gathered in the valley from the waterline to his old home. And of course, slowly, there were fewer stones between what was to come and his home. His brother remembers the lorries. He loved the lorries. It was exciting. There was dust. There was action. There were men with funny accents, you know, from England, from Ireland, arriving suddenly. He became, uh, one of the young lads there became a lorry driver. And he says, oh, it's because as a child I saw this and thought this is exciting. So, you know, all sorts of emotions. But the children certainly knew that something big was coming and that their lives were going to change forever.
interviewed for a 2019 book entitled Wales Awakening, one of the children of the Capel Kellen School, Erdogan Prisor Jones, voiced here in Welsh and in English, recalled some of her feelings when it became clear that the struggle to save the valley would be a losing battle. Collwyd y frwydr ac ynillodd cwmni tarmac y tender i wneud y gwaith. The battle was lost and Tarmac Company won the tender to do the work. Workers from Ireland came like a swarm of bees. They were hard-working and honest men. This was a turning point in our lives, a hive of activity, mud, dust and visitors coming to see us daily before the drowning. Everybody would ask, where will you go? Where will you live? And we felt that there was something huge about to happen and that every anchor we had in our lives was being dragged from under our feet. In July 1963, the school was forced to close. Each one of us was given a piece of cake to take home with us, a cake donated to us by Emmett Llewellyn, Owen Williams and John Albert Jones. Before we reached our homes, the machines came straight away to destroy the school and its contents down to the floor. We didn't even have the opportunity to take down our pictures from the walls. The chapel met the same fate in 1964. Its contents were shared between the members. Everyone was overwhelmed by sadness. Within two years of living in a new house, one of Liverpool's main men announced that he was coming to see the house to check that it was up to Liverpool standards. They hadn't contributed a penny towards the building work. A man went through the house. Before he left, he turned towards my mother and said, I hope you realise we don't drink your water, we only use it to flush toilets. Gwyn Roberts' mother Martha was the head teacher, the only teacher at the school, and he remembers that she was very proud of being a professional teacher, and she wasn't sure she ought to be seen marching along the streets of Liverpool. Was this the done thing? And yet so moved was she by what was going to happen to her children as she saw it that she did go on the march and he says that this very determined lady at the end had to hand over the key of her school and the school bell, the cracked school bell to the company that was doing the work and she said, you can have the key but I want the key and the bell back when you're done and the irony of her school, you know, pretty quickly pretty much being bulldozed and and raised to the ground so that there was no need for a bell and there was no door. But she got back her key the moment it could no longer be of use. And I think those are very potent symbols of people, you know, trying their best to be polite but defiant. One of the more emotional aspects of the story really is how they kept Uskul Kapelkelin, which is the school in Kapelkelin, open for as long as possible. So these kids aren't moved out in a way which defies belief from a, a modern standpoint. The school is open until July 1963. They're still taught there while this carnage really goes on around them. They hear chainsaws of trees being felled, buildings being knocked down. They're erasing everything, all the memories of it all. So it's had quite a an impact on these young people at the time who are now in their 70s and 80s who will talk and and be visibly moved by the memories of hearing this and trying to live a normal life at the same time. I think part of it was that Liverpool just didn't want anything to threaten the mechanism of the dam, really. So all everything was removed, nails and trees and buildings and goodness knows, well, everything. I mean, they left two walls, interestingly, at the chapel and 
drowned by the English pigs, drowned by English bastards, is daubed on these walls, which still sort of suggests, of course, that the anger and the frustration of this episode hasn't entirely, if it by any means, gone away. It's become totemic, actually, I think, the flooding. You know, for younger generation, Kovyok Terewerin, remember Terewerin, you know? It's hard to argue with that. As a Welsh patriot, you can see where this anger is coming from and this frustration. The children and the young families that left remember the accents. That's how they remember it. You know, suddenly there were Liverpudlian accents um, of people coming to visit and working out what was going to happen to their community. And suddenly there were lots of caravans which were going to be home for Irish workers who came to work there. Some stayed, some got married. Um, there's a great story of a protester who was, you know, drawn in to carry out the chairs from the chapel because the next day uh, it was going to be bulldozed. And a guy goes past and he's an Irish worker. They say, hello, he's all right, she's all right. And they decide that across the lines, you know, they quite like each other. They got married. So the promise of jobs was certainly made. And there were some who were certainly persuaded that given there was compensation on offer, given there were to be jobs, you know, not so different from today in so many ways, they decided that they would give this their support. And certainly the local council you know, decided to support this because they saw an opportunity for jobs and, and what they saw as good infrastructure being built. But it isn't clear at all who filled those jobs in the end. Some farmers did okay out of it, I think. Others less so, depending on their situation and what they can buy as an alternative to start again. Yes, some of the families, three, four families, were rehoused. But then I'm reading in the early 1970s that there are damp issues in these bungalows in Vrongoch, for instance. I'm not sure there is a happy ending, actually. This idea that, some, that everybody benefited, which is going to be the Unionist and the British and the Liverpool perspective, that we've improved their lives. Well, how have you done that exactly? And some of them, ironically, end up in the what was, from an Irish perspective, we call it Frongoch. In Wales, it's Frongoch, which was the prison camp where yeah. the rebels of 1916 were incarcerated. Yeah. So what's known in, in, in Irish as Old School Narev Logia, the, the uh, University of Revolution. It's a fascinating sort of twist of, of history for me, really. To learn that Michael Collins is imprisoned at Frongoch and may have learned some Welsh, so the, the local legend has it. I mean, I think in some ways there is a parallel in the sense that was this the opportunity that Wales had to create its own university of, of revolution? And did we or did we not take that opportunity? Or was Gwynford Evans right in saying that we don't want to go down the Irish route? We can't afford an Easter 1916 scenario. So we have to abide by a constitutional approach and believe in that. And I think perhaps when you see the emergence of the National Assembly for Wales as Senedd, I would say he's probably right. You know, I can see the need for political protest in a militant sense, that perceived threat, and making use of that perceived threat, but also the importance of following constitutional channels in order to achieve the political outcome you desire. Capelkellen may be underwater, but as its drought-induced reappearances in 1989 and 2022 have shown, it hasn't gone away. And it still resonates as an issue today. 
just as many Welsh people are aware in 2023 of the drowning of the Tweddon Valley as was the case back in the 1960s. And that's mostly down to a slogan daubed on a gable end in North Wales. There's a, a wall, a, a tumble-down wall on pretty much the main road up from South Wales to Aberystwyth. And it's in a very good position if you want to share a message. And back in the 60s, someone did exactly that. Make Stevens uh, and his colleague Roderick Evans painted red all over the wall and then in big white letters, Coviwch Trwerin, remember Trwerin. And in that way that these things can do, it caught on. It is a really was a simple political message, but it got through to a lot of people. And there was great pride that it was there. But, you know, as these things do, they go a bit quiet until someone has a go at it. And there had been a few attempts to deface it. Someone had painted, you know, something about Elvis or had just painted over it. There was once someone who changed Coviwch Dwerin to Ang Coviwch Dwerin, forget Dwerin, as though Welsh speakers themselves were saying, hang on, you know, isn't it time to move on? But there was something about the timing of this last attack when it was defaced and there was a feeling that someone was just having a laugh. And for some reason, that caught on at that point. It wasn't long after lockdown and as though people had gone back to their communities and thought about what's important in life and had decided, well, this is... This does matter to us. It might be graffiti on a wall, but it really does matter to us. And organically, it happened that people just went out in their local communities, found a stone, found a wall, and repeated Coviochdrawerin. And it took a while for the Welsh nation, I think, to understand what was happening. But suddenly, as people got to travel more, they realised everybody's doing this. There's another generation here who understand what Coviochdrawerin means and they've cared enough to go out and replicate Coviochdrawerin. And that led to the Welsh government getting into discussions with the landowner to ensure that this wall would fall no further and that the graffiti would survive. It's been seen in the Falklands, it's been seen in Chicago. I mean, I think that is the point, really. It, it has resonated, it is totemic, it is something that people recognise. And it sums up all that is wrong, if you like, or certainly historically, all that is, has been wrong or is wrong between Wales and England. And so for younger members of the Welsh community, this is seen particularly, I mean, not just younger members, but to them, this is something which sums up our subjugation as a nation, really. But how we tap into that, and I try and steer that process by way of concluding the book, you know, by all means, recognise this for what it is. But let's not hang our identity on past grievances, whether they be 60 or 600 years ago. You know, as a progressive, forward-looking nation, we need to be more confident than that. If you talk to some of those who lived in Capelkelin, they'd say that there would be no Senedd today in Cardiff Bay were it not for Tewerin and Capelkelin. They say that the name Capel Kellen ought to be up there in light somewhere in the Senate. I think if you talk to others, they'd say it's harder to draw such a clean line through history to say that had you not had the drowning of Capel Kellen, you wouldn't have the Senate. But what you did have at that point, I think, was that realization that we were impotent, that our political voice mattered little in the UK as it was and that if we wanted to avoid this happening again or indeed cause better things to happen, Wales needed that voice. 
And you would argue that it needed a constitutional voice. You might argue that it needed louder protest. But whichever side of that debate you were on, there was an agreement that our impotence was what this had reflected. And there was some shame about that and enough anger about that that you can follow, I think, that story through the next few decades and to the yes vote in 1997. The music for this programme, in Welsh and English, all of which relates to the drowning of Capel Kellen, came from Enya, Gweno, the Manic Street Preachers, Catherine Finch and Tistion. The readers were Iris Llewellyn-Jones and Bethan Kilfoyle. The programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio. Come in,